Uh, listen, excited you're here tonight. It is spring break, so we're excited for those of you who are either in town visiting on spring break, or maybe there's some joining from out of town on spring break, or there will inevitably be some who listen to this recorded. And so we're glad uh, it's spring break. Hope everyone's having a good time. I want to remind you, so we, we took last week and we made it through two thirds of it and we're coming back to the latter third this week. We, we, we're talking about this claim that there are errors in the Bible, that there are errors, that the Bible is, is not accurate, or the really tricky one is when you will hear people professing Christ use it and say that the Bible is accurate for faith and practice. And not everything else, which means the Bible tells us about Jesus. It tells us how to know Jesus. It tells us right from wrong. But when it comes to some of the history or some of the science, that's scrupulous and it's, it's not there. And it's, it's a closet way to then begin a easy, slippery slope down to ultimately denying all of the word. It's, and it's not me saying that. It's, let's go, you know, if we were to put tonight and go back and look at church history, it's not the first time that statement's been made. It's been made many times, and that's always where it leads. Last, last week, I told you, my hope is as we go through this, we're by no means, and especially tonight looking at science, there's no way I can cover remotely anything on the scale of what all different things we could cover. My hope tonight is to give kind of a broad framework that can be useful to you as you hear various kinds of statements in various kind of ways. And so that you can either respond to those things or maybe you've got some questions and those things can help strengthen. But my ultimate prayer is what I shared last week, that our confidence in what the word says would be even more secure because science comes and science goes but the word of the Lord stands forever. And our ability to be confident and to follow Jesus truly, especially in the day and times we live in, is going to be directly tied to how confident we are in the word. So if you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to open to uh, two spots. Uh, go with me to Psalm or go with Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, and I'm going to encourage you, kind of keep, keep a little bookmark there. We're going to turn one other place, but we're going to come back to Romans 1 later. I want you to see something as it relates to science. Understand, what is science? Science, strictly speaking, really is, it is the philosophy of the natural world. That's what science actually is. Science is considered a philosophical category. It's philosophy of the natural world. That's what it has been historically. For us, that would be the study of creation. Not creationism, how do we get here, but creation, the world, the universe. Uh, look with me, Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. And I can look there. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have clearly been seen being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Now catch what that says there. Since the creation of the world, since Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. Since that moment where God said, let there be light. And there was light. Since that moment, when you and I look around creation, Creation is declaring the eternal power or the divine power, the divine nature in the eternal power of God. Now keep, keep that marked and turn with me to Psalm 19. Psalm 19. And I'm going to read it. I'm going to read probably the whole Psalm here because it's it, even as I initially went here for one reason and then remembered something else, and I think it fits with what we're looking tonight. Look at Psalm 119, and this is one of many psalms, one of many places in Scripture that says things like this. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. By heavens there, by the way, we're not talking about heaven, the dwelling place of God. We're talking about the night sky, the stars, the heavens, the universe, and their expanse declares the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out 
through all the earth, their utterance to the end of the world. In them he placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them. There is nothing hidden from its heat. Catch what those verses say. The heavens are active, not through words, but through the shining splendor of their glory, declaring the glory and greatness of their creator, God. It's exactly what Romans 1 says. That you and I, if our minds are operating correctly, we'll come back to that point, should be able to look at creation and come to the conclusion, God. And to no other conclusion. Not only that, but if if the first six verses of this psalm tell us an example of how creation tells the glory of God, look at where this psalm goes. This is fascinating. Verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, blameless, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. They are sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Now catch where this psalm goes. The first part of the psalm talks about creation and how creation declares the glory. The second part of the psalm talks about the word of the Lord and all of its good for you and I. And notice there is no tension between science and the word. This psalm upholds both. So this idea that has come out today, that science and scripture are in conflict, is a farce driven by a Satan-led culture. And for you, why do you say Satan-led culture? Because scripture says that Satan and the demons rule culture. And I'm trying to be weird by that, like, it's just the reality. It's the prince of power of the air. But look at what the last part of that psalm says. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Creation, science, the word, scripture. Lord, may my thoughts and meditations be pleasing in your sight, which means this. This conflict between science and the word ultimately comes down to a way of thinking that is displeasing in the sight of the Lord. We want to be in line with the Lord. And I want you to see that there in his word. So we won't cover everything tonight, but here's what I want you to see. The idea that science is contradictory to scripture and God is false. In fact, what scripture seems to present is that all true, real science will always reveal the mind, handiwork, and power of the almighty God. And it's upon this foundation that all of the major pillars, uh, scientist pillars upon which our modern foundations of science are built, all of them were built by men who who were committed to the idea that science did not contradict scripture, but the study of science was looking at the world to understand the logical, orderly mind of a God who is vastly superior in intellect to us. From Copernicus to Kepler to Galileo to Newton, they all held the Bible in highest regard. Even as recently as the 19th century, John Clerk Maxwell, who's, the, who's a preeminent feminist, uh, feminist, not feminist, physicist of his time. I don't know, maybe he was or wasn't, I don't know, not in my notes. Uh, preeminent physicist, he would spend every Sunday just reading theology, processing over they viewed God creating a world separate from himself. They, they saw that their view was to track down through science how this mind had constructed. One of them would say it's reading God's thoughts after him. Even Albert Einstein, who did not believe in Jesus Christ, even Albert Einstein said this, everyone who is seriously involved in the pursuit of science becomes convinced That a spirit is manifest in the laws of the universe, a spirit vastly superior to that of man, and one in the face of which we with our modest powers must feel humble. 
Basically, here's what he's saying. He's not saying that he believes in Christ. He didn't believe in Christ, but he is saying that when you really look at the science, you understand there is a bigger mind behind it all than anything we possess as a human. Now, here's the reality. Here's where the tough part comes in. The Bible uses a lot of phenomenological language. Phenomenological, meaning the Bible uses language that describes the way things appear. It's not always using language in a scientific textbook style, which is why a proper statement would be that the Bible is without error in everything it presents as it presents it. There are some places in Scripture that present something that really is a scientific claim. There's other places in Scripture that aren't presenting anything of a scientific claim. They're presenting something of a poetic claim. Let me give you an example. Psalm 93. Psalm 93 speaks that the earth is firmly established on a pillar. So some critics have said, well, look, look how backwards the Bible is. They thought the earth was static in the heavens. False. It's in Psalms. It's poetry. It's describing the idea that we're not standing on the earth bouncing around like a pinball through the galaxy. Instead, when you look up at the night sky, what do you see? The same stars you saw the night before. Why? Because the earth is in a fixed place, in orbit around the sun, in a solar system that's in a fixed place, in a part of the Milky Way galaxy, in a galaxy, on and on and on. So the reality is there is language in Scripture that describes the way things appear which is huge when we come to the issue of miracles. So the language when God parts the Red Sea and it says that the water was like walls on either side. It uses the word walls. That's obviously describing the way it appeared. But that word is significant because that word for walls is a word that would be used for walls that are 10, 20, 30, 40 feet high in defense of a city, not a word that would be used to describe a swampy marsh that maybe goes up to your knees, which is something that people claim even in the Christian faith, that all it was was a swampy marshland and a strong wind came and blew enough water back and they crossed over. That doesn't explain the language in the text. I don't know anybody that sees knee-high water and go, man, it was like walls. (laughs) Nor does it explain how when God brought all the water back, it drowned the entire Egyptian army. I would think at least some of them could get out of knee-high water, but (laughs) anyways, so miracles. Now here's what you understand about miracles. Miracles, the Greek word for a miracle means a sign. And if you look through scripture, especially in the book of Acts, Anytime there is a miracle, it is always in conjunction with somebody being willing to hear the gospel afterwards. It's never just miracle at random. All right, if you read the gospel, if you read the book of Acts, it's not like Peter walks around and goes, you miracle, you miracle, you miracle, you not a miracle, you miracle. That's not what it is. It's the spirit leading a miracle happening and the miracle leading to a direct place of witness and what's there. It means a sign, Miracles, by definition, are not common or ordinary. How do you know that, Pastor? Because every time you see one in the Bible, everybody flips out. And if it's something normal, nobody flips out about what's normal and everyday and mundane. I mean, Jesse does. I walk out of the room brushing my teeth, she gets all excited. Ooh. But if I walked in here brushing my teeth, no one in here is going to think anything about it other than why is Pastor brushing his teeth in the middle of everybody else? Go back to the restroom. Here's the other aspect of miracles. Miracles are by default outside the boundaries of what science can look at. Science is naturalistic philosophy. It is the philosophy of nature, meaning that science looks at things which can be seen, touched, observed, experimented upon. A miracle, by definition, is something that is supernatural, meaning outside of the natural order, meaning it cannot be observed, it can be observed, but it cannot be experimented upon, hypothesized, and repeated by a human in a controlled environment because you and I lack the ability to do anything supernatural. So a miracle by default. Some people want to say, well, science shows those miracles can't happen. False. Science can't say anything about whether or not that miracle can happen. 
Science is not equipped. That goes beyond the bound of what science is. And I shared this. Oh, I'll come there in a second. <clears throat> Uh, one of the preeminent Christian apologists, John, uh, John Lennox, said this, rationality is bigger than science. The world of scientific inquiry does not encompass all rational inquiry. What he means is the world of science can't answer every question you can ask in reality. There's a whole lot of things, even in our world, that aren't supernatural science can't answer. Science can't answer love. Science can't answer hatred in the human heart. Science can't answer, I mean, on down the line, on down the line. Science cannot answer. Technically, science can't answer how we got here. Because you can't observe it and you can't repeat it. So the world of scientific inquiry doesn't encompass all rational inquiry. This is a tremendously important point. So science has its limits. It can describe the universe of matter and energy, but it cannot account for that universe. The great delusion of modernity is that the laws of science explain the universe for us, whereas the laws of nature can describe the universe, but they cannot actually explain anything. Science can describe things we see, but it can't ultimately tell us why. Why is it that way? In terms of uh, science can answer why, why are my eyes brown? But it can't answer the deeper question of, why are my eyes brown? How was I specifically designed and wondered? And it, all this leads up to this. I read this last week, and I, and I want to go back there just briefly this week in case some mystics, I think it's so important, but there's, there's, a, there's this atheist, Anatole, uh, Anatole France, who in France, there's a, in the city of Lourdes, uh, back in his day, there is a fountain of water and people would come and claim to be healed by its waters and they would leave their crutches. And so he tells this story that, it, that, if, that if I and a friend were to happen upon and looking at this place where there's all these crutches that have been left and canes that have been left by people who claim to have been healed, he said, and the, and the friend who's with me looks and says, you know what? A wooden leg would be more to the point, meaning that's great, but anybody can leave their, their, their crutch and cane and limp away and have their friends carry him away. Like that's not, you know, anybody could lie there, but if someone left their, their wooden leg, or let's translate it into modern day, if someone left their full prosthetic leg, that would imply they didn't have a leg and then a leg grew because they consumed the water. He said that would be more to the point. And here's what, this, here's what the atheist said. It was the word of a man of sense. He said, but speaking philosophically, the wooden leg would be no more convincing than a crutch. Someone of a truly scientific disposition were suddenly observed this, they would not say, look a miracle. This is what they would say. An observation so far unique points us to the presumption that under conditions still undetermined, the tissue of a human leg can have the property of reorganizing itself like a crab or lobster's claws in a lizard's tail, but even more rapidly. Here we have a fact of nature that is apparently in contradiction with other facts that we know. This contradiction arises from our ignorance and shows that the science of animal physiology must be completely rethought because it's never actually been thought through well there. Here's what he's saying. Even if I saw a miracle, I would never call it a miracle. There has to be a natural explanation for it. Because what you and I witness today in the scientific field in terms of this idea that science and scripture class is not the idea that true science classes with scripture. It's, it is a philosophical idea. And if you'll remember when we did that overview on biblical worldview and there were those 10 categories. And I told you that in the biblical worldview, our starting foundation is the category of theology. And our theology then determines our philosophy and on down the line. That's the same in the Islamic worldview. Their theology determines their philosophy. But in all the other worldviews, the New Age worldview is a little weird, so we'll say give that one an exemption. It's kind of a little bit of both and. But all the other worldviews switch philosophy and theology. And their philosophy determines their theology. And so when you're talking about Marxism, secular humanism, and postmodernism, but especially the, the, those first two, which are the most, um, the most in terms of the scientific world we see, both of them hold to a philosophy that all that exists 
can only be explained by naturalism. All that is real is that which is physically in front of us. Nothing else is real. There's nothing beyond it. Well, if you start with that as your automatic assumption, by default, there can be no supernatural. Because you've already cut it off at the head. That is what you see in the clash that is taking place today. It's a view we would call scientism, where science is the only legitimate source of knowledge. It comes from a strict commitment to naturalism, And places complete and total faith in every way in that which the human mind, remember that, science isn't even what's actually objectively true. It's that which human minds can make sense of on the data that they enforce on science. And I by no means, and what I'm about to say, am trying to make any kind of a dramatic political statement simply truly an observation. But as we've walked through the last two years of COVID, it should be clear how up and down and back and forth the scientific process is. It's this. No, it's this. But now it's this, because that's what science is. Science is theorizing based on something I see. It's experimenting on it in order to change the theory and on down the line, on down the line. That's why there are so few scientific laws and so many scientific theories, including the theory of evolution. It's why it's not a law. Because that's part of the scientific process. And so the claim is because we believe there's something beyond the natural that there is, that's irrational. Here's the danger of that though. Because we start with theology, our doctrine of God's power says that God can do anything that's logically possible. And God, who is supremely rational because he knows all things, can surely act in in line with that reason. So the fact that God could create a world and endow it with regularities where things are common and, and things are constant from you and I's perspective is not hard to understand. But also the fact that if God is beyond what he creates, which he'd have to be to create it, it also means God is not bound by those same limits which means that God possesses the ability when thinking of things like miracles to override natural laws by intervening. And when he overrides them, he's not violating the laws or suspending the laws. Those laws are still operating, but they do not have their ordinary effect on what God is doing. This is no different than right now if we take this water bottle and I hit that water bottle off the table because of the law of gravity it will crash to the ground. But if I hit that water ball off the table and Thomas with lightning quick reflexes catches it, the law of gravity hasn't stopped. But his intervention has done something to stop that from hitting the ground. And to that water bottle, that would probably be a miracle. (laughs) Obviously, the illustration falls because that's not a supernatural act. It's us walking, but you understand the point. So, What about actual science things in scripture then? Well, most don't realize this, but historically, historically going back to antiquity, to the time of the Greeks and Romans, the overwhelming view of how did the world get here was actually the world's always been here. The overwhelming view until the 1950s, scientifically, was that the world had always existed. And then in the 1950s, as they began to observe things, as they began to theorize, they began to do some science that's legitimate, all of a sudden they start to come out with this theory that you and I would know as the Big Bang. Now, not going into all of what's tied up in that theory, here's the irony. For 2,000 years, the scientific community said the world's always existed. The Bible said that at one point there was nothing, and in an instant, boom, something existed. And in the 1950s, all of a sudden someone goes, you know what, it looks like there was nothing. And then boom, bang, there was something. Genesis has been saying that for 4,000 years. 
And even inside of that, even inside of that Big Bang, again, there's some parts, if you want to get really into the theory of the Big Bang, that's a different, I'm just mean broadly the fact that now in the scientific community, they accept that there was nothing and now there's something. Now, that's the challenge. They don't really accept that there's nothing. They always got to find ways around it because truly to have nothing means you have to have an outside agent start the bang, which science cannot allow for because that means by default, something outside of nature exists. But here we go. March of 2014, the astronomers announced the discovery of what they believe are primordial gravitation waves, meaning that they see these waves that are slowly expanding and expanding, which means vice versa. If you rewind the clock, oh, they all go back to a starting point where they exploded outward. The explosion of the Big Bang was not like an explosion in the movie where it's just fireworks going off in every direction. The idea is that there was nothing and then an instant this precisely controlled, fine-tuned explosion happened. And if it had happened slightly faster, all the matter would disperse and nothing could clump together and exist. If it was slightly slower, all matter would instead clump into a dense lump and nothing would exist. And there's four fundamental forces that begin at the very instant. And if any were off in a slightest degree, any one of the four and their relation to each other nothing would exist. And by the way, the values of those forces were established once permanently in a one millionth of a second. In other words, instantly. Like somebody typed it in and made it happen just the way they wanted. Now, now let me get, I'm, gonna, I'm not a scientist, but let me give you some numbers here. The ratio of electromagnetic force to gravitational force, there's a ratio between the two. If it were different by one part in 10 to the 40th power, no universe can exist. Now you go, I have no clue, Pastor, how to visualize 10 to the 40th power other than 10 times one with 40 zeros after it. Great, let me help you with that. Take the North American continent as westernmost as uh, the western part of Alaska, as easternmost as the, probably the Yucatan Peninsula, as northernmost as the top of Canada, as southernmost as Panama. Take the North American continent, cover every single part with a dime. It's a lot of dimes. But don't stop there. Repeat that process until that's, those dimes stack all the way from the earth to the lunar surface. But don't stop there. Please repeat that one billion times. And somewhere in that pile, take one dime, paint it red, throw it in at random, blindfold your best friend, and have them pick it out on the first try. That is the odds of 10, 1 in 10 to the 40th power. It's impossible. Let me put it really simple. The fossil record, when Darwin came up with his theory, the postulation was the more we unearth fossils, the more we are going to find all these transitional species. The problem is, with the exception of a couple forged species, we've not found any. We are still lacking the gaps. But here's also the problem. Much of the theory is based on how things were found in the fossil order. So right, theory goes, amoeba to this, to this, to water life, to amphibian life, to land life, to ape life, to human, right? It's based not on what we discovered, it's based on the order things are in fossil record. When you look at the order of all kingdoms, phyla, and classes, and compare it with most, the most reasonable science, over 95% of all the lines are not consistent at all with the order in the fossil record. Plants go from water-based plants to land-based plants to plants that can survive without water. Likewise, vertebrates go from sea dwellers to amphibious creatures to land creatures to flying animals. Macroevolution attempts to answer that, but let me give you another option. I don't know, say if you had a globalized flood like the Bible says, what would die first? The sea and plant life where the springs of the deep open up. What would die next? The amphibious life that can't really get that far in land. What would die next? Land creatures. Those that cannot get high up, followed by those that could climb the highest mountain. What would die last? I don't know, birds. Oh, wait, so a globalized flood can explain 
the fossil record, by the way, doesn't deal with the fact that by default, when you see a mutation in nature, a mutation dies. So how are you going to get from this to this and do there? Now, oh, I love this. I remember one day I saw this article pop up. It was on Fox News, a little ticker. And I said, no way. Maybe it was BBC. Said they found the oldest fossilized snake skeleton in South America. It was fascinating. You know why it made news? Because the oldest fossilized snake skeleton had little legs. Oh, wait, what book of the Bible's only said that for 4,000 years? <laughs> Anyways, now that one I'm not as serious about. That was a real article. Who knows if they didn't get stuff mixed up or not. But the point is when you go down and down and down, you see that there's, there's more, than, uh, more than sufficient answers in true science that do line up with scripture and, uh, and if you go, hey, where can I get some more resource for that pastor? I would encourage you, Answers for Genesis is a great spot, great simple starting place. There's more you can go from there, but Answers in Genesis uh, is a group that looks all at issues of that. But what about the miracle of life? So in the 1960s, it was thought by scientists that you had to have two factors for life to exist on a planet, the right kind of star and a planet the right distance from the star, okay? Got the right star, planet the right distance from the star. Those two odds alone, it was estimated that only 0.001% of all stars in the universe could have a planet that supports life. Just those two. Well, there's a lot of other things that have come in there. Gravity. The size of the earth determines gravity. If the, if, if gra- if the earth were a slight, big, larger... Methane and ammonia gas would remain close to the surface rather than dissipate, and those gases don't allow life to exist. If the earth were just a smidge smaller, then water vapor would dissipate in the atmosphere, and all of us who are 75% of water couldn't live. Days. If the earth rotated slightly slower, you go, wow, give me a little bit more time. No. The temperature swings between night and day would be so intense, human life wouldn't be possible. If we rotated slightly more quickly, it would produce high winds. And you go, well, how high? Well, I can't tell you how high. I can tell you this. Jupiter spins faster than we do. And on Jupiter, there are regular winds of 1,000 miles an hour. By the way, Jupiter. Jupiter is the largest planet. It sits right outside the asteroid belt. It's the fifth planet in our solar system. And based on where it is, it's 222 times the surface area of the earth. It could fit 1,320 earths in a sphere the size of Jupiter. But here's the reality. Jupiter has 318 times the gravity of earth. And based on where Jupiter sits in the solar system, you want to know why we don't get pelted by asteroids and comets? Because Jupiter's gravity throws all of them off to where they don't hit us. The moon if the moon were a tad bit bigger, the tides would destroy the coast. If it was a tad smaller, the tides wouldn't come far enough in to, to uh, cleanse the salt water. If the size of the moon and its distance from earth are not exactly what they are, our axis would be off, which would also affect our seasons and temperatures. By the way, even the evolutionists conclude that the moon came after the earth, which is what the days of creation say. The sun is 400 times larger than the moon. It's also 400 times further from the earth, from the earth than the moon. And because of its size and its distance, it allows the moon to perfectly eclipse it. You want to know why the moon covers the sun just perfectly? Because the ratios of their size to each other and distance from the earth is perfect. Just like when God said he created those things in order for signs for the seasons to humanity. And by the way, that's not common in the universe to have a moon and a sun line up like that to do that. All this to say, by the time you get to 2001, 21 years ago, the number of fine-tuned characteristics that scientists had concluded are, are absolutely necessary, they cannot be different in any way, has leapt to 150 different, different, uh, different realities that have to be present. And when we calculate that out, the odds of a planet supporting life, the odds of one planet and the whole universe supporting life with all 150 of those is one in 10 to the 73rd power. Now remember, the odds of 1 in 10 to the 40th power was, was North America and dimes to the lunar surface a billion times repeated. Now here's what's crazy. In the known universe, which we know a lot about our universe, 
because of the Hubble Space Telescope. The number of planets in our known universe is only 10 to the 23rd power. Wait a minute. So the odds of one planet holding life based on the factors of life we know is 1 in 10 to the 73rd, but there's only 1 in 10 to the 23rd that exists in our universe? According to this, the odds of any planet being able in our solar system to, to support life are 1 in 10 to the 50th power. Let me spell that out for you real simply. Impossible. We don't have enough planets in our universe statistically for there to be one that supports life. So what do you do with all this? When you look at the data, in fact, it was just at the turn of the 20th century, Antony Flew, a prominent atheist scientist, he shocked the scientific community because as he looked at DNA, he came to the conclusion that DNA is so complicated, it is impossible to happen by chance. He didn't turn to faith in Jesus Christ, but he said, I do believe now in intelligent design. Someone designed and wrote this code. It's impossible. So you go, well, why, Pastor, if, there, if, the, if there's such, such unbelievable evidence like that, why do we see such hostility in the scientific world? Well, let me remind you what Romans 1 said. That God reveals his wrath, Romans 1, verse 18, because of the unrighteousness of men, and notice what it says, who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, meaning that every lost person is active in their heart, pushing the truth down by their own sinfulness. And why are they, why is it they pushing it down? Because not only does creation reveal, but that which is known about God, verse 19, is evident within them because God made it evident to them, meaning that there is something in the human heart it doesn't mean that everybody's born knowing God, but it means that every human heart is stamped by, its, by, by their creator. That Ecclesiastes would say there is the longing of eternity on the heart of man. It means that a human being has this longing. There is an inward testimony that someone made me. And look at verse 21. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. They became futile in their speculations, meaning they kept thinking and thinking and thinking according to their own reasoning, and it became worse and worse and worse and worse. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over. Why? Is there such a conflict? Because a human being, apart from being reconciled to their creator by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, has a mind that is broken and bent, enslaved to sin, under influence from the enemy, and will never on that basis read the data correctly. And all data Historical, textual, scientific, political, name your category. All data can be misunderstood and misrepresented. So, one last thing. I had an apologetics professor teach me. Someone, everybody likes, they're real scientific to try to punch holes in every miracle. It is pointless to try to debate somebody on nearly every miracle in scripture because as we've said, you can't, none of us were there. You either are going to accept it because you're rock solid confident in the word or you're going to reject it because you're rock solid confident in your faith that all that exists is nature. But there is for sure the most important miracle in scripture that has so much weight of proof behind it, there is no court of law if they operate correctly that can overturn its reality. So I invite you, take your Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I know choir folk, we got nine minutes, so don't get up and leave. I'm gonna get through it all, I promise. And you'll wanna know this, because here's, here's the reality. Jesus came, even the most liberal historians will admit Jesus from Nazareth was a real human. Jesus came. Jesus made this claim. I'm God. You want to know how I'm God? I'm going to die for your sin and I will raise, rise from the grave. So if Jesus really rose from the grave, 
It validates every claim he makes. And there is no miracle greater than having power over death. So look at what Paul says, chapter 15, 1 Corinthians. I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you and which you received and which you stand. Look at verse 3. For I delivered to you as of the greatest importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he appeared to James, that'd be the brother of Christ, the uh, half-brother biologically of Christ. Then to all the apostles, and last of all, to one untimely born. Which you read there from verses 3, I delivered to you of first importance, till you get to Paul's statement in verse 8. If you study that linguistically, that is basically believed to be the first gospel track ever invented. That is probably the oldest portion of the New Testament. And, and I won't go into all the, the studies for the sake of what we're trying to get to, but all the stuff shows that within the first six months of Jesus' death and resurrection, that is how they were sharing the gospel was what you just read. He said, I gave you that which is the most important, that Jesus died. He didn't just die, but he died in accordance with what was prophesied by God's holy word, those scriptures that are without error. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, and that he appeared. And in his appearances, he appeared to people who followed him but abandoned them, and he appeared to people who hated his guts. The implication being all of whom now claim him as Lord and most of whom are still alive, and you can go ask yourself for their eyewitness testimony. Those facts are the facts of the resurrection, crucifixion, Jesus was crucified. And by the way, we looked at last week of the historical stuff. All the, all the major Roman historians that we have, the three most major, all reference the fact that Jesus was crucified. One of them would have even had access to see, uh, it doesn't mean he did see, but he would have had access to see the actual uh, uh, sentencing. Crucifixion, nails in your wrist, hold the body upright and it caused severe pain. Hands are probably partially paralyzed from nerve damage. Nails through the feet, hold the weight, and give the victim the ability to push themselves up. When the cross goes in the ground, the shoulders and elbows likely dislocate, making the arms useless. useless. You die on a cross, not from pain or blood loss, but by suffocation. As the wounds scrape back, Jesus died by crucifixion after scourging, by the way, and I will spare you the details of scourging to me are far worse than even the details in terms of what you see visually on the cross. So some would say, well, nah, Jesus merely passed out on the cross. I'm sorry. That doesn't survive medically. That's not very believable. Also, if Jesus just passed out on the cross and they took him down and he woke up, how did he get himself unwrapped? How did he get himself with blood loss, with, with dislocated arms and shoulders? How did he unroll a massive stone from his grave, beat two Roman guards? And when he showed up on the road to Emmaus, how did the two guys go, holy smokes, we got to get you to the hospital. Doesn't make sense. <laughs> it definitely wouldn't convince enemies. Another theory people have said, well, Jesus had a secret twin. <laughs> we won't even go there. That is a real, that is a real theory, by the way. So Jesus died. Oh, and also on dying, if Jesus didn't really die as a political execution, the people who were to put him death would be killed in, by the same. Roman soldiers took the job of killing people very seriously. Not only that, but they really enjoyed it, which is a different dimension to it. We also know there's a fact that there's a tomb that's empty. Now remember, Jesus was buried in a tomb, but he didn't just get buried in a tomb. He was buried in the tomb of a rich, prominent Jewish citizen. You and I, that's not as big of a deal, but, here's, but, but, but it also stands. If any of you have bought your burial plots and you were to give up your burial plot to someone and we put them in that grave, we wouldn't just be going, well, we can't find the body. Well, yeah, we'd go to the actual grave and go, look, the grave is empty. There's nothing in that specific grave. And there's a great, if you've never seen, there was a movie called, called Risen. And it's about a Roman centurion who's been tasked by the Sanhedrin and Pilate to find the body of Christ post-resurrection. And it's, it's, a, it's a take. I mean, they claim that Jesus rose. It's, it's meant to be a Christian film in that regards. But there's a great visual 
where the cross is, you see them at one point take down some criminals from the cross and they just march about 20 feet behind the cross and you just see them sling the body and then the camera pans up and it's just a mass grave of mangled bodies because if you were crucified on a cross, you're a criminal. You didn't get a grave. So the fact that Jesus was buried in a grave, in a tomb, in a specific tomb of a rich man that would have been well known means that there was no shot. You know, the alternate theories are, well, everybody just went to the wrong tomb on Resurrection Sunday. Sorry, doesn't line up. Also given the fact that only one tomb in the city of Jerusalem had Roman guards stationed after it, outside it. The other theory is that the body was stolen. But this doesn't line up with the fact that both friends and enemies claim to see the resurrected Christ. This doesn't line up with the fact that no body was ever discovered. It doesn't line up with the fact that all the apostles who would have done the stealing of the body died in brutally horrific ways that you would never die for the sake of a lie. Brutally horrific, by the way. So there's an empty tomb. Jesus died, he just crucified, he died, he was really dead. Empty tomb, this lines up with what Paul says, friends and enemies. Realize, where are all the apostles when Jesus gets arrested? They all scatter. They're terrified. They all abandon him. As far as we know, only one even showed up at the crucifixion, that was John. Where are Jesus' followers? They're all abandoned. His family, his family doesn't, his family thinks he's a nutcase. Yet all of a sudden, we have not only here, but, but last week we saw from Tacticus and Pliny the Younger that you had real people who were both at one point friends or people who were at one point enemies of Christ who are saying, we've seen Jesus, he's the risen Lord, and we'll lay our lives down. The alternate theories are is that this was just a legend. The disciples made it all up, but that doesn't explain the empty tomb. Then explain the fact that no body's ever been found. It also doesn't explain why if they made it up when they wrote their gospels, why on earth would they have written that women found the tomb first? Because in the first century, the testimony of, of woman, one, one person, one, one Roman, or I think it was Josephus said that the testimony of a woman is worse than the testimony of a criminal in a court of law. That was the view of the testimony of women in the first century. So if you're making this up, you would not write every one of your gospels to say that women found the empty tomb first. You'd only write it that way if you were committed to truth, and that's how it actually happened. Well, then there's a theory, well, people just hallucinated seeing Jesus. Here's the problem with that. Can any two people hallucinate the same thing at the same time? Much less 500. So here's the reality. When you and I, we did it real briefly here. When you walk through those facts, here is the incredible reality. 2,000 years ago, a man showed up. His name is Jesus, born of a virgin, grew up in obscurity, around 30 years of age, was baptized, and all of a sudden had a three-year ministry where he very clearly said, I am God. I'm going to the cross for your sin. I'll pay your punishment. They'll put me in a grave. Three days later, I'll rise again. If you trust me, if you yield your life to me by, through faith, I will save you in grace. I will fill you with the third person of, of the triune Godhead, the Holy Spirit, who will seal you forever. I've got a mission for you, and I'm coming back soon. Fact. And like I said last week, if our phones are on ring right now, and we were told there's a fire coming this way. It's a mile wide, a hundred foot high. You either believe that word or you don't. And if you believe that word, you take common sense action. It's not a fairy tale. We believe church family, Jesus died, Jesus rose. And if Jesus rose, then there is no contradiction between science and the Bible. The Bible is not an error on what it claims. And there is no miracle the Bible purports that is not possible to have happened. So that said, before I let you get out of here, I brought a couple of the resources you're welcome to come by and look at. Uh, this is a great, this is a really fun book. It's not academic, <laughs> but this is all on the five, the six facts of Jesus and the resurrection. How do you know he's resurrected? It's a great visual, especially if you got younger kids, but it's actually very helpful. It's very well done. 
This uh, orange book, In Defense of the Bible, this is a great overall textbook. Just if you're really driven by any of the issues we've covered last week and this week, this is a great overview over all those different areas. I will warn you, it's written by seminary guys. So there may be a couple parts you go, what's that word mean? And if you want to read it, awesome. I'd encourage you to just ask pastor to help you out or use your dictionary. It's not too bad, but this is a good overview. And then if you're really into, or you know someone into how reliable are the New Testament documents, this is a very well uh, by F.F. Bruce, are the New, New Testament documents, are they reliable? Let me give you the proviso. This is highly recommended. I've not read it personally. These I've read it personally. They're great. You can use them. Um, I just haven't, they haven't gotten through that one personally. I've read other resources. So you're welcome to come by, look at those, take pictures. Uh, let me pray. And thanks for being here tonight on spring break. And we will see you Sunday. Father, just what a joy. Jesus, you're alive. You're alive, which means you're also in control. It means when we look at a world that's in absolute chaos and we see the worst the world has to offer as people's life expires. God, it means that every Ukrainian brother and sister in you whose life has ended in this last month The moment they breathed their last breath, Jesus, you swooped them into your arms and you took them home. Not wishful thinking, not wondering, like real. Jesus, it means when we look at a passage like this Sunday and you say, do not be anxious for anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God so that the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension, may guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It means, God, you're actually serious about that. And if we will really through prayer and thanksgiving, turn the anxiety to you. You will protect our hearts and minds and your peace. Why? Because Jesus, you are the Christ and you are alive and you are coming back. And so Father, may we not fall into some kind of a wayward dreariness, drowsiness as believers where your word just kind of becomes a magical religious text. But may we understand just like if our phone rings and we heard fires on the way, Jesus, you're alive, which also means when you say, I'm going to put the Holy Spirit in you to empower you to go out and share the gospel, it means we don't lack anything, Lord. There's so many ramifications. And so, Lord, as we encounter a world that is increasingly um, worships the science of man, may we not hate science, but may we seek true science. And Lord, may we subject all things to your word because at the end of the day, the flower withers and the grass fades, but your word stands forever. Jesus, we look to you. It's in your name I pray. Amen.